holidays can be very difficult for those of us who are in or have been in a narcissistically abusive relationship. In this episode, Tara and I delve into why this time of year can be triggering, why so many survivors and victims who've been in a relationship with a narcissist and other toxic people have learned to be extra cautious because of their dislike of celebrations. And instead of the self-help tip, Tara announced that she's launched a new podcast called The ADHD Couple, where her and her husband explore all the issues related to couples living with ADHD. Hey, now you don't need to wait a week for your next podcast fix. Join Breaking Free with Carrie and Tara Substack and get an extra audio podcast exclusive to paid and free subscribers. To sign up, click the link in the show notes. Thank you for joining us on Breaking Free from Narcissistic Abuse. I'm Dr. Carrie Kerr-McAvoy, a mental health specialist with over 20 years of counseling experience. And I'm Tara Blair Ball, a certified relationship coach. This is a listener-supported podcast. Please consider becoming a supporter of the show for less than a cup of coffee. So we're heading into the holiday seasons, and I've been hearing a lot from my club membership that, that this is a rough time of the year. There's a lot of triggers. Narcissistically abusive relationships tend to have oddities around this time of year, like rules around giving or how they spend money, or often the narcissist becomes depressed and unavailable. Maybe they become sulky or excessively angry. It's interesting that this is a common problem. I don't have a lot of triggers this time of year. I mean, I was in that relationship only for a couple of years, so it wasn't like we had a big, huge tradition established for me to feel kind of anxious this time of year. But I wondered if that's something you're struggling with or if you've heard other people struggling with. It's something I did struggle with for a long time. As we've talked about in a previous episode, I always really struggled around big events, holidays, because that was often the time where the narcissist in my life would be very unpredictable and usually bring some degree of chaos, whether it was good or bad. More often than not, it was bad. But usually the holidays were a time where I just felt very tense and was bracing for something bad to happen and trying to word it off before it officially blew up. Mm. I always felt during the holidays that it was a very lonely time. I felt really trapped with family for a long time, and my family was where my narcissist was. And then I'm having to spend usually time around other narcissists or other very toxic, unhealthy people because they also happen to be members of my family. So it just was a Honestly, it just was a really sucky time. And I remember always seeing these people who seemed really happy spending time with their families around the holidays and always feeling really sad and grieved that I didn't have that same experience. My dad would get blue. Usually my dad had to take a second job because there wasn't enough money to buy gifts. So he would go be gone all the time between farming, which slowed down in the wintertime. But he between what little farming he had to do, but he would also go over and start to work for my uncle who had an auto repair shop. So that was a way he came into extra money in order for him to be able to spend. I think it was hard for me was because we were so poor that the most of my gifts would be clothes because I had probably grown from the start of school. And so I was needing new clothes to kind of tide me over to the end of the school year. Um, But for me personally, I think maybe it was my autism, but I just sort of checked out of the larger context and focused on my own desires, my own needs. In fact, I would (laughs) pretty routinely, when I got fed up at my one grandparent's house, which was only two miles from where I lived, I would get up and walk home. 
And I didn't really care what kind of weather I was walking mm-hmm. home in. I would, I just preferred to be alone and kind of decompressing. I think the other thing is, and this is something I probably, it just hit me as I'm saying all of this. One of the reasons I would want to leave that house is because the person who had assaulted me as a young child was home and was living there. And so being around the person who had betrayed me so severely was very uncomfortable. So I just wanted out of there as fast as I could because we as a family were living in a state of denial that this person had done these horrible things. And how stressful to be a child coping with being around your perpetrator and having to navigate holidays. I would get through the dinner, maybe hang around kind of politely long enough, and then I would head home as a result of that. But I just kind of, I was a loner. So for me, the holidays was just a time that I would focus on the beauty of the season. And I loved the trees and the decorations that we put up and the trees, meaning the snow in the trees. And then I just loved the fact that it was snowing and how gorgeous that was. And I really enjoyed the Christmas tree decorations. And I love holiday music. So all of that just was something I focused on. Did you see FX's series, The Bear? I saw the first season, okay. which was wonderful. Okay. Very intense. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I finished season two and season two, episode six is called the seven fishes. It's a Christmas tradition some families have where they have this meal and it's a flashback. It's a self-contained episode. So people could watch it and not watch the whole series if they wanted to. It just stands by itself. And it's a flashback of what this family survived growing up in this highly mm. toxic home. The father is not there, but the mom is there. And the mom is is working up for a breakdown. You can feel it that the everybody knows that mom is getting herself. And they're even talking about it. Like, what stage is mom at before the terrible eruption happens? And then they, of course, finally sit down for the dinner. And as a family starts to, like, talk about how thankful they are for the meal, she loses it. <laughs> it happens. This, this thing that everybody's been dreading happens. And I have a feeling that that's what a lot of people are going through, that the holidays for them is just this, it's takes whatever they're surviving, the eggshells they've been walking on, and then times it by 100 because of the financial pressure, because of the narcissist's negative mood, because of the family expectations and try to navigate all of that, all of that, you know, the extra work, all of that. And then it's building until there's a, a massive eruption. And the other thing I see is that People who are more emotionally immature hate seeing people be happy. And how much more of a triggering time for them than these holidays, which supposedly we're all in a good space. So I think sometimes they just love to shit on what's special. So I know for a lot of people, this is a really, really rough time. I can really relate to a lot of that, especially your description of the episode of the bear because that was literally, it felt like every holiday in my childhood, it was just waiting just raced and tensed and anxious and waiting for whatever shit was going to happen. And you can't enjoy the present. I couldn't, I I mean, you said you liked looking at the Christmas trees and the decorations. Mm -hmm. That was not a part of my life Mm -hmm. until I reclaimed holidays Mm -hmm. for myself and part of my recovery work. I could not see that without having that negative, overwhelming feeling of, oh God, oh God, what's going to happen this time? It's going to be bad. I would dread holidays for that reason, because it's a lot of time off school or off work, and I'm spending time around people where blowups are inevitable to happen. I can't predict or stop or alleviate them. It was just going to happen. 
And I hated it. I hated feeling trapped there out of duty or obligation or the fact that I was a child didn't have options to just walk away. There wasn't anywhere to go. (laughs) Right. So and as an adult, I still felt that same sense because when I was married to the narcissist, it was very much all the expectations of go see this family, go see that family. We have to stay a certain amount of hours. We have to just be there and trying to play nice around people who are just going to talk badly about me as soon as I walk out of the room. I did not feel free of any of that sort of dread and anxiety until either the holiday season was over or I, too, was alone. Right. You know, and then whenever I was alone, I just felt unbearable amounts of grief Mm. because I knew that this wasn't how it was supposed to be. That's not how I wanted it to be. And it it sucked, you know, and some of that was some unreasonable expectations. I can't expect a narcissist to play nice every holiday like that's (laughs) setting yourself up for disappointment constantly. So unreasonable expectations about the person that I was with and the people I was around, but also just unreasonable expectations because of how much I didn't have control over those situations. And when I was able to finally leave and make choices and be intentional about that, it's a totally different experience for me today. I really love the holiday season at this time of my life. My kids are at the age where it's all fun and exciting and (laughs) They love looking at decorations and decorating. And that's that has been a big reclaiming for me. Mm-hmm. And that started as soon as I left the narcissist. Mm-hmm. You know, my kids were just, you know, my kids weren't even two when I left the narcissist. But that first Christmas, it still was sad because I was just a single mom. I, I couldn't necessarily afford a lot. Yeah. But I still really worked on making it special. And for me, that also was a healing process for me of being able to give someone else what was never given to me. Yeah. That's so cool. I love that you're doing that. I think it's really amazing. In that episode of The Bear, they showed different family members reacting differently to the situation. And it hit me just this week. I don't know why I'd never put it together before, but that the reactions that we develop that carry into adulthood are actually characterizations of the fight, flight, fawn, or freeze modes. It becomes part of our personality. So let me give you an example of what I mean. If you're a fawner, you know that caretaking and checking in with whoever is being out of control and just sort of easing the situation, it's really easy then as an adult to become a people pleaser or codependent or somebody who's like an apprentified person. I know that I was highly parentified in my family. Or say that you're a fleer. It's just easy for you to learn to either literally never be at the situations or be the person who's hanging off in the corner, or you might be the person who's dissociating. You're sitting there and literally just dissociating. You're there, but not really there. If you're the fighter, you may be picking fights with everybody around there and just being antagonistic and irritable and very difficult. Can you see how these sort of carry on? And that hit me because I I realized that I tend to either freeze or I'm busy trying to like I I shared about that Thanksgiving story or I'm going over the top trying to make this extra special hoping that people feel seen and loved which hey I mean my dad all he needed was a can of cranberries you know dumped into a bowl and he was happy and here I'm doing all this extreme efforts to make this a perfect down to ironing iron or linen napkins that I didn't need to get out or use so it's interesting Mm -hmm. how how these can become ingrained habits of ours. And not serve us anymore, but we continue to do that. Exactly. I definitely 
still can find myself fawning. That's that's absolutely my sort of default is going back to fawning as trying to make everything perfect, trying to be overly controlling and overly managing. That's that's why the not having unreasonable expectations and letting things be and trying to find joy in just how they are Mm -hmm. is such huge progress for me. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much work. I'm right now I've, I've been dating and I've been seeing somebody a few times and I'm already feeling the way that I typically approach a relationship. I'm starting to approach the relationship the same way. And I, I know that it, I tend to do that with holidays. I tend to do that wherever there's really big triggers. I tend to fall back into my MO. And so one of the things I'm realizing that I'm not doing when I get into these stressful situations is that I don't share how I'm actually feeling. I start to act like the situation is on ice and that I need to be very careful, step carefully. And then I begin to hold myself back so that I don't somehow make things worse. And But what's happening is I'm not really being myself. That's, that's sort of a, a betrayal of me. And, you know, when you're meeting somebody new, they don't really get to experience you because they're experiencing you taking care of them. Or even with my family, my family doesn't get the benefit of me just being, you know, naturally me hanging loose and and laughing at stuff. I'm if I'm scanning the room, making sure everybody's not unhappy, then I can't really be present. So that's one of the things I'm trying to work on. And so I, I guess I'd love to hear if somebody's resonating with that, how can we become more present, more emotionally present? Do you have some thoughts mm-hmm. about that? I've been trying to think about what that looks like for me too. Yeah, I've had very similar situations, especially dating. When I think back to that, I remember one instance where I was in a car with my now husband and it was early on dating and he just was complimenting me. And I don't even know what what he was complimenting me on. Maybe something I was doing, maybe my looks, I don't know. But I remember sitting in the car and I reached up to hold that handle Mm. and I was like, I'm just going to jump out of the car. Wow. (laughs) I need to get out of here. I feel suffocated. Get me out like, of this car. Oh, man. And, wow. Yeah. And that is because any time in those narcissistically abusive relationships where someone was nice to me, overly nice, it came at a price. Mm. It came at a cost that I didn't want to pay. So you were like, you when know, is the shoe going to fall? Gonna- yeah, exactly. When is the shoe going to fall here? Yeah. When is mm. When is it going to happen? And so I'm like bracing for it. And I, I just had that, it was just this panic where I was like, get me out yeah. of here. And the only way that I learned in that particular situation, I, I did not handle it the way I would have liked in that particular situation. I just froze and just didn't speak and just kept thinking about how I just needed to get out of that vehicle as quickly as possible. As I talked to him about it later, you know, I had a conversation of, hey, uh, it was really hard for me when you were complimenting me. It was really uncomfortable for me. And he was like, well, why? (laughs) You know, I think those things, like, why would it make you comfortable if I'm telling you these nice things? And I had to walk it back and reflect on, well, why did I? You know, why did I? And share that. And it helped him understand a little bit more about me as an abuse survivor and an abuse victim. And it also helped us sort of move through that, that when he complimented me later, I didn't have that same kind of panic. Yeah. Because I saw what had happened where he had given me a compliment and nothing happened afterward. It helped to build that sort of faith and predictability that I would need in a healing relationship. And I think that's hard for a lot of us is being able to share with people who are safe and build on that. 
I think too much of the problem of my previous dating and relationship life is I had tried to share those things with people who were unsafe, who would then punish me, use it against me. And so I was taught in those situations, you can't share. But if I'm going to try to be different, for one, I have to choose safe people and I have to still try to do the same thing and build on it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm realizing one thing that I'm doing that was a aha was I started finding myself talking about the other person. They're doing this. They said this. What's going on with them when they this happens? What are they thinking about? That focus of outside to me is a sign that I'm trying to control the external environment to manage something inside of me. So now I'm having to sit back and think, okay, so what was I feeling in those moments that's making me want to focus on the exterior? So I'm just using listening to myself as a cue that I'm doing that, that I'm not saying how I feel. But here's the other problem. I'm realizing, and I think a lot of people struggle with this, I don't even know how to share how I feel, especially in a stressful situation. That, that, that's a yeah. skill a lot of us, we have, you have to learn how to do that. You know, it's just funny because I spend all this time with clients teaching them how to do that, and, and I know how to do it in super safe situations. But it's, it's amazing how it's like my brain falls out and I can't think how to do it when I'm stressed. So I'm having to like imagine situations and play them out and imagine what I could say that would be authentic, that would be like to say, I'm not comfortable with that mm-hmm. versus some more caretaking thing, which might be, well, that might work, but have we thought, you know what I'm saying, where you're doing all this analysis of the situation. So when I'm literally having to practice in my head these scenarios. I had to learn to say, let me think about it. Mm. Let me think about it. So it'd give me that time to leave, pause, reflect, and get back to the person. But you know what was also the most beneficial for me is sending that information in text. Yeah, I know. I've thought of that. I have thought of that. That was literally how I first learned to do that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. is because I needed that distance. I needed someone to not be looking me. (laughs) I needed to just sort of hide behind a screen. Uh But that was how I started of like, I really felt blank about blank. Yeah. That helped me beginning. Yeah. Because I was so baby at sharing that kind of stuff. Oh, me too. But I, I'm thinking even about the holidays. Like, say so-and-so wants you to come over to their house. You don't really have time. The kids are going to be tired. It's the wrong time of the day. Maybe you've already eaten twice that day and you don't want to eat again. But that might be a moment where you can say, um, that's not going to work, but I really appreciate the offer. I'm thinking about, why do they always have to do this? Don't they think about the fact that this isn't going to work? I mean, that's what we often do. We we focus on right. all the stuff we don't like outside of ourselves. We just could simply say, eh, thanks for the invitation, but it just isn't going to work with our family. It's a bad time. And that would be more authentic. You're mm-hmm. present. You're expressing what you think and feel in that moment. Now, it's not a lot of feelings, but it's at least being you know, present. I was also thinking just at this time of year, how much more self-care that I have to do as a recovering narcissistic abuse survivor. It's a lot less today, but still it's a lot. Mm. I can very find myself easily getting overwhelmed and neglecting my own needs. And that's when I get into such a bad place. Because yeah. in those narcissistically abusive relationships, I always entirely neglected myself. and never prioritized things that I needed to do for me. And I found myself having to do that again. Like I've gotten into a habit again of eating standing up. Mm-hmm. And that was a big part of all those narcissistically abusive relationships yeah. is I would just be like shoveling food in my mouth in front of the refrigerator. I, I just wouldn't sit down yeah. to eat. 
And that's a sign that I'm overwhelmed. And literally before this call, I I was eating breakfast standing up and I was like, what am I doing? Why can't I go sit down? Right. Like just that remembering to do those things for ourselves because we matter and we're worth it. I'm worth sitting down and resting while I eat. And when I was in those abusive situations, I never felt like I could. Such a good point. I I even think for me, I have to be really practical. I have to anticipate and plan and script out ahead. So I I think that might be a good, that's another great suggestion is to say, not only ramp up the self-care, but anticipate where the rough moments are going to be, anticipate who's going to say what, and try to then plan for that so that you have a, a ready statement that expresses how you're feeling and or maybe what you want to do about it or how you're going to blow it off or whatever, but that you, you're you on your feet proactively being assertive versus reactive, being crushed, hurt, and going home and then having to lick your wounds. I think that really helps. At least it helps me a lot, too. this is a wrapping up for the year and um, is a self-help tip. I want to do something a little different and I know I'm putting you on the spot, but I wonder if you would talk about, because you just launched the ADHD couple podcast. Why don't you share about Mm -hmm. that? So people who are listening to this can know what else you're doing. Cause I think it'd be a lot of help for a lot of people. I didn't know you were doing this. I didn't either. I just spontaneously (laughs) thought this would be a really good idea because I listened to the first episode last night. It's amazing. I really loved it a lot. Awesome. Thank you. So my husband that I've talked a lot on this podcast, we both have ADHD. I actually was just diagnosed with ADHD this year, and he had been diagnosed years before he and I ever met. And I know that ADHD really impacted our relationship, especially once we moved in together, because I just wasn't aware of, of what it meant, what it looked like, how it manifest. And we really had to work through that as a couple. And since being diagnosed myself, I've done so much more research and thinking into how it impacts us. And so we were just sitting down one day and we just decided it would be a good idea to think about how we could help other ADHD couples, whether one or both partners have ADHD. And I work with a lot of couples where one or both people have ADHD and they're not thinking of oh, my partner didn't do X, that's because they have ADHD. They're thinking my partner didn't do X because they're disrespectful or they don't love me. And for my husband and me, we've really had to work on that. And I've personally had to work on it since I wasn't diagnosed until earlier this year. I felt like every time he left cabinet doors open that it was, he was doing it to me. Mm. Like, I asked you to close those cabinet doors. Why are you leaving them open? And it felt like he was doing it to me. But ADHD... Just like autism that you have, it's like our brain literally is different and having to approach it and see it differently that way. So every episode, we sort of chit-chat about a different topic. Our first two episodes were about just sort of ADHD in general. The second one was about division of labor. And then we try to give actionable tips to couples where one or both people have ADHD. And honestly, it's been really, it's been really fun just having that sort of conversation with my husband. He says it's not working, but it feels like working, but it feels fun. Breaking free from narcissistic abuse is, I love it, but it's not necessarily fun because it's it's some shit. Yeah. We have to deal with some heavy, dark stuff. It is. So it's nice to do something a little different. Yeah. I, I What I liked about it when I listened to the first episode, and I can't wait to listen to the second, was that you guys have a fun dialogue back and forth. And I really appreciate getting a male perspective 
because so many men are diagnosed with ADHD, but there's not a lot of vocal men who are discussing what the experience is like, particularly in a relationship, what the experience is like. So I really appreciate that dynamic because I don't think that's a common one. So I'm, hey, I'm doing a shout out that I think it's an awesome new podcast. If you guys are looking for support that way, please check out the ADHD Couple podcast with Tara and her husband. You know, it just hit me that we're wrapping up for this year for season two. And this is, we're going to be signing off and wishing everybody a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And so I just want to, I want to do a shout out to thank all our listeners for being a part of this journey with us this year, for the changes that we've made. Thank you to you, Tara. It's been a joy to have you on this year and and to do this together. And so I just want to wrap up 2023 with a lot of gratefulness. I'm very, very grateful. I would just thought the hairs went up on my arms just thinking about the end of 2023. Time has flown by. But also, this has been such an amazing year. Like, and you don't need to like thank me for coming on. Like, this was you started this, and well, we we've made it something really cool together. And I'm really excited to see what we'll do for 2024. Me too. Me too. So, Merry Christmas to everyone and Happy New Year. Mm -hmm. or happy holidays exactly yeah (laughs) exactly thank you for joining us today have a question or comment email us at hello at breaking free with carrie and tara.com if this episode has been helpful consider becoming a supporter and if you haven't yet make sure to follow us at breaking free from narc abuse on instagram youtube and facebook we'll see you back here next time